Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. I thank you for this song we just sang, The Blessing, and the reality that that is not a prayer that we have put into Scripture hoping that you might want to seek the good of humanity. But that Scripture itself in Numbers is a revelation of your intention and desire and pursuit. And so as we come to you in your word again today, as we open up the second chapter of the Bible, we ask that you would open up us to you and your grace, you to us. And by your grace that you would let us see ourselves and one another as Genesis 2 seems to be about. So we bow before you for your word, your revelation. Come and speak, Lord. Amen. All right. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis 2, uh, 4 to 25. Uh, if you have a Bible app, should get you there too. I'm going to be reading largely from the NIV. It's just a good, decent, reliable translation. Always, every translation has its moments where things can be clarified, and we'll do some of that today, but that's what I'll be reading from. There's two things that, oh, and let me just say right at the outset, this is going to feel like a little bit of a different Sunday teaching, because I, in some sense, I'm not approaching this as a typical sermon that I've built this thing. I'm going to just walk us through the text and let it speak to us bit by bit, so we're just going to walk through it. There are two things that I think are vital to acknowledge as we move from Genesis 1 into Genesis 2. We spent two Sundays in Genesis 1. I wish we'd spent three. Maybe in January I'll come back to one more part of it. Um, but there's two things that are vital as we pivot from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. The first is to recognize that Genesis 2, though the second chapter of the book of Genesis, is not the second chapter, it's not a second creation story. It's not the second chapter of the creation story. Instead, it is, as our opening verse in today's text will highlight to us, it is just another angle on God's one great song of creation. As Genesis 2, verse 4 says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's easy to miss it, but there, this verse is supposed to get our attention, actually, in two ways. It probably doesn't. It's probably just like a, we just pass it and go for the goods. But there's two things in this verse that are intended to get our attention. First of all, is that this verse actually has an essential pivot in it. Notice the words, the heavens and the earth. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. This is, in truth, the third time this exact phrase has been used already in Genesis 1 and now 2. Uh, the first two times this phrase shows up are the bookends of the Genesis 1 song of creation. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the order. Genesis 2 verse 1, at the end of that story, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And here again in our opening verse today, and then there's this shift 
in our verse. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Many will argue it's subtle, but it's significant, that this pivot invites us to embrace Genesis 2 as not another act of creation, a second act of creation, but another angle on God's one song of creation, an angle more on the ground, from the earth up, maybe we might say, the earth and the heavens as opposed to the heavens and the earth. Another angle from the ground, an angle that the good God of Genesis is convinced we need. And I say the good God of Genesis because the other because of the other surprise, though often missed, shift in this verse. It's a first, actually. I'm curious if you noticed it. But Genesis 2, verse 4, is actually the first time in the Bible that we encounter God's personal name, Yahweh, represented for us in our English Bibles as Lord, all caps, which should be a surprise to us. Since the God of Israel does not reveal this name, Yahweh, until Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, the second book of the Bible, God doesn't reveal this name until Exodus 3, and yet it shows up here in the second chapter of the first book. Exodus 3, when God comes to Moses in the midst of his late-in-life wilderness wandering, if anyone thinks you're in your mid-whatever, later life, and your life is a wandering, and there's, it's all done. Moses is your champion. There could be a whole new chapter ahead. And Moses is off in this wilderness wandering. He thinks his life has been wasted and derailed. And in that space, God, the God of Israel, the God revealed in Scripture, comes to him and calls him to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt to bring the Israelites out of their oppression, which forever weds this name Yahweh with this story. We need to know that. Whenever we hear or encounter this name Yahweh, Lord, all caps, we should think this is the rescuing God. Lord, all caps, Yahweh, this is the God who hears the cry of the suffering and comes and does something to set them free. Lord, Yahweh, this is the God of justice who stands against oppression. This is the God who rescues us from death and leads us to life. That is the story of the Exodus. And that is the story that is always forever to be bound up in this name, Yahweh, Lord, all caps. But again, that's Exodus, which is confusing that a name that God reveals later in the biblical narrative shows up before in Genesis 2. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Or does it? It does, if we remember or realize or remember as we talked about in the last few weeks that the book of Genesis didn't come into its final form until the Israelites, centuries later, were exiled in Babylon. There, this story of the creation of the world was brought into its form and there, in the Israelites' exile and suffering, God inspired Yahweh, the rescuing God of Exodus, inspired the scribe of Genesis to write, Genesis 2 verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, which I think invites us to anticipate goodness as we step into this chapter. To anticipate Grace, original grace, 
rescuing grace in God himself and what he, the Lord God, Yahweh God, wants to make known to us about us in chapter two. Grace that corresponds with something we celebrated last week. That according to Genesis 1, all people, male and female, are created in God's image and consequently are both equally vested with God's value and God's authority, created in the image of God to be God's image in the world, to share together in God's rule and care for all of creation. That's what Genesis 1 declares to us unapologetically. Genesis 1 verse 27, so God created humanity in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And as we talked about last Sunday, this was an unheard of idea in the ancient world an unheard of idea and a radical departure from ancient Near Eastern ideas about humanity, but especially about women. In the ancient Near Eastern world, where the Genesis account was first given voice, no creation story of any people that we know of historically referred to women being made in the image of God. There is no glory according to any of the ancient stories There is no glory in being a woman, often just the opposite. Which isn't to say that the ancient Near Eastern cosmology said nothing about women. As one scholar explains, it's worth noting that the central narrative conflict in the Enuma Elish, the ancient Babylonian creation story, which we've talked about a couple times the last few weeks, the central narrative conflict in the Enuma Elish is a war between Marduk and Tiamat, a masculine god, Marduk, and his foremother, a feminine power that must be violently subdued before the creation can take place. That's the world that Israel lived in among the Babylonians. And yet, this gendered conquest, this scholar says, is utterly absent from Genesis 1. Between male and female, there is no war, only a common dignity and a joint commission. And we could trace this line of dehumanizing gender inequality through so many ancient cultures and on to today in both the Western world and Western ideas and Eastern cultures and Eastern traditions from Western philosophers like Plato, one of the most influential philosophers of Greek thought and culture and Western thinking, who expounded in the Timaeus, among other places, this, the Timaeus being an extended series of monologues on the nature of the world. There he said, men who live cowardly and unjust lives are reborn as women or other kinds of animals. One of the founding philosophers of Western thinking. Or you could jump from Western world to the Eastern world. The ancient Eastern Hindu practice of sati, where a widow would throw herself on the burning pyre of her deceased husband. Or female infanticide. Or the belief among many Buddhists down through the ages that women need first to be reborn as men in order to achieve Buddhahood. As Ian Proven, in his masterful book, former professor of Regent College, the book is Seriously Dangerous Religion, what the Old Testament really says and why it matters, and it is beautiful, it's a beautiful book. Dangerous in confronting false ideas about the Old Testament would be my summary of the book. It's very thick. He says... The dominant understandings of anthropology and politics in many societies throughout the ages have not been good news for many members of these societies, including most women. The biblical story begins to move in a different direction from its very first 
pages with its radical notion that all human beings are created in God's image, which makes the Bible good news for both men and women. And so with the good news of Genesis 1 in our minds, we turn now to Genesis 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 5, there's no slide for this, I'll just read it. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth. You can just go back one. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole of the ground. Right away, you get the sense, I hope we get the sense, that in Genesis 2, we're coming in as the creation story is happening. After the earth has been made, but before vegetation has grown up, and before humanity is on the scene, and there's a sense in which Genesis 2 is pivoted towards, aims towards showcasing how the flourishing of the world is bound up in the presence and the partnership of humanity. Hear that. Genesis 1 paints this picture of a world that is intended to flourish under God by his grace according to his goodness. Genesis 2 describes the same scene, but with this angle towards how the world is intended to flourish through the presence and the partnership and the participation of humanity. Verse seven. Then Yahweh God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. A few things will catch the attentive reader here. Maybe many things, but I'll mention three. First, if we were reading this in Hebrew, we would undeniably notice that the Hebrew words for man and ground are super connected. Adam and Adama, man and ground. Some Hebrew scholars will go so far as to translate Adam as simply earthling, but that doesn't feel human to me, so I am not dialed into that. But there is a place for just showing this language being a strong connection here. Second, the presence of the garden. Well, specifically God planting a garden. I know there's a few gardeners in the room. Can I have a shout out for gardeners? Yeah, especially those who plant gardens. Stu, I'm looking straight at you. And our garden team. Has anyone noticed how beautiful our property grounds are looking these days? Yay, garden team. It's true. Yeah, like that strong clap there. That's good. But here, it, we're, we're smiling, we're laughing, yay, yay, yay. And yet, what's the big deal? What, what's the big deal in Genesis 2 about this? It seems somewhat random, but it's not. In the ancient Near Eastern world, divine temples always had a garden. You can look up the gardens of the gods, not just in Colorado, but in mythology. The, the gardens of the gods, the hanging gardens in, in ancient history, in Babylon, other places. This was integral to the ancient Near Eastern view of a God having a place where he is worshipped in the world, and then these gardens. There's nothing unique about this, but what is unique about this, about Genesis 2, is who the garden is for. Who is invited to be in the garden? In the stories of the ancient Near East, it's the gods who get to live and enjoy the gardens. The trees are for them, not humans. In the Mesopotamian epic of Gilgamesh, we're told of a mountain sanctuary filled with luxuriant trees to which, quote, no mortal being can enter. But here in Genesis 2, creation is described as God's sacred 
garden. A garden in which God places the humans, Adam, and then together with him, Eve, to live in the garden, to enjoy it, and to care for it. We'll come back to that in a moment. Third, we hear in this verse an odd reference to Eden being in the east. East of what? Right? If no other place has yet to be named, how is Eden east of anything? It doesn't make sense to us. But in the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, east was always thought of as the place where life comes from. The sun rises in the east. Case in point, Bruce Walkie, a trusted Old Testament scholar, notes that in ancient Egypt, which was oriented around the Nile River, all the gods of life were east. That way? Oh, which way are we going? That way. All the gods of life resided on the east bank of the Nile. And on the west bank were the pyramids, the tombs of the dead, and the gods of death. So by speaking of Eden being in the east, we're invited to know that this is where life comes from, above all. Verse 9, Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. For, food. for who? For the humans. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. I will jump ahead because I don't know how to pronounce some of those words, but it doesn't matter. We'll jump ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. It's almost a repetition of a previous verse. But notice that there's two distinct tasks here, to work it and to care for it. The Hebrew words here are havad and shamar. Havad being to literally to serve and shamar to keep or guard. Next slide there. Ian Proven, again, explains the significance of these two words because avad and shamar are the exact same language used in Numbers chapter 3, Numbers 3, 7, and 8, about the tasks of the priests in the tabernacle. The priests are to avad, serve the tabernacle, and shamar, guard or care for the furnishings of the tent of meeting. The implication of this being... From a biblical perspective, according to Genesis 2, all of humanity's work in God's garden, all of humanity's work in God's garden, in God's world, is sacred, priestly work for the glory of God and the good of the world. Verse 16, and the Lord God, Yahweh God, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die Pastor Aaron will dig into that next week for us. Help us dig into it next week. Which brings us to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Let you sit with that. If you have read Genesis 1, you will know one of the most beautiful and undeniable refrains of the Genesis 1 song of creation is God's repeated assessment at every stage regarding every aspect of the creation. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. Climaxing in the creation of humanity, 
male and female made in the image of God, which God goes on to describe as very good. Not just tov, but tov meod, very good. But here in Genesis 2, something according to God is not good. And I want to pause here to acknowledge that this didn't need to be. God could have left us with just the celebration of Genesis 1 and then moved on to Genesis 2, Genesis 3. The story of Genesis 2 and the not good scenario in this verse isn't needed. It doesn't need to be told unless it does. Unless the God of Genesis is convinced that we, if we do not stop and listen to this, will so easily not realize it or live into it. Unless the God of Genesis wanted and still wants to say something that we might otherwise not realize, take to heart and live into, and specifically about the glory of not just man, but woman in God's world. And I'm convinced this is the case. There are a number of stories in Scripture that on their own, you think, why did we need to know that? We need to know that because if this story did not depict it, we would not know it. We would not know that God is against child sacrifice but offers his life if not for the story of Mount Moriah where God sends Abraham up to the mountain to sacrifice his son and then stops him and says, no, I will provide. Abraham would have believed like everyone else in his culture that at some point God is gonna ask for his son if not for that moment where God said, come with me up on the mountain to sacrifice your son and then on the mountain said, stop, I will provide it was a necessary revelation to counter the narrative of the culture and the world in which Abraham lived. And I am convinced that is what Genesis 2 is. Genesis 2, the song of creation, Genesis 1 and 2 are a counter, a necessary counter narrative. The essential context for us to make sense of our lives and our world. Okay, so Genesis 2 verse 18, what is not good? And notice it's not Adam that says this. God says this. What according to God in is not good? The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And before some of the married guys in the room say, yeah, I can't handle a weekend with my wife not there, because I know you've already said it in your head, I want us just to notice this, this is about so much more than that. Oh my gosh. You need to know that the language in Hebrew is even stronger than not just not good. Bruce Walkey among others, many point out that the Hebrew word here is very emphatic. It is not just not good, it is bad. It is bad. According to God, it is bad for Adam to be alone. Why? Why does God deem this not good or bad? Well, God tells us in the second half of this verse by explicit implication. I don't know if that's possible, but I'll say it. At the most basic level, Adam, the man, on his own is not sufficient to the human project. I want to say that again. At the most basic level, Adam, the man, on his own, is not sufficient to the human project, to the world's need. The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Now, I'm sure some of you are inwardly crying, as though this verse is the first sad clue that the God of Genesis is not good news. Or maybe worse, bad news for women. That here, right here on page two, 
women are essentially introduced by God as the help, as man's assistant, man's subordinate, the one to do the work or maybe to do the work for him, a junior assistant to the man, someone Riley suggests. Which by implication means that Adam, the, the man or men in general, are, according to the God of Genesis, supposed to play the lead role in the relationship to call the shots. I can understand how this verse could be and is often heard this way, felt this way. But as biblical scholars of all stripes, and I mean that, I am not overstating, of all stripes what want are eager to point out the word translated as helper here is this Hebrew word, ezer. I worked at a church in Saskatoon called Eben Ezer. It's this word. Thus far the Lord has helped us, ezer. It's a word that appears 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice in reference to Eve, right in this text in Genesis 2. Three times in referring to nations to whom Israel appeals to for military help when faced with a powerful enemy that they themselves cannot face. Take that to heart. And 16 times, I don't have enough fingers for that, so I'll say four with my hand. 16 times, <laughs> which is the vast majority, right? Out of 21, 16 times, Ezer is used to refer to God as our Ezer, our helper. And I don't think any of us would refer to, think of, perceive God as our subordinate, there to do the dishes for us. Oh, sorry, got a little close there? <laughs> That's my own son. who knows that his dad does the dishes. <laughs> yes, God is our Ezer, our helper, but my goodness, not our subordinate, right? And so in God's word here to the man and to us about Adam's need for the woman, we cannot impose servant, subordinate, Yes, Adam, sorry, Eve would compliment Adam, and we'll get there, but we've no, no reason in the text to hear this as subordinate. In truth, if we are to hear how this word is commonly used throughout the Old Testament, which is the best way to come at defining a biblical word, not going online and pulling up Webster's Dictionary, but looking at Scripture, how is this word used the word Ezer would be better translated as vital partner, if not rescuing counterpart. And I'm not overstating. I'll come back to this in a moment. But first, let me simply, again, allow Ian Proven, I'm gonna draw on a number of scholars today, to distill the implication of Ezer for us. He writes, this word helper, Ezer, is often, most often used in the Old Testament of divine assistance provided for the human beings. It speaks then of a strength in Adam that is insufficient by itself for the tasks that have been given. Which leads Proven to the conclusion, it seems that the human vocation in the cosmos can be fulfilled only in community, not in individuality. Which brings me back to the need to translate Ezer better, not simply as helper, but 
as something like vital partner or better, vital counterpart. And interestingly, just last night, before I went to bed, I was looking at a modern Jewish translation of the Old Testament, and they translate this verse to read, fitting counterpart. And I'm drawn to this language of counterpart because God's answer in Genesis 2 is to the not good of Adam's solitary existence isn't merely the glory and the gift of an ezer, but of an ezer connecto. Yeah, you're getting Hebrew grammar today, friends. An ezer connecto, or as our English Bibles have it, a suitable helper. Uh, in Hebrew, the order is reversed. Ezer connecto. And for all the attention given to the meaning of Ezer, Konegdo deserves its own day because this Hebrew compound word Konegdo literally but awkwardly, one scholar says, in English means like opposite him. As Ian Proven explains, according to God in Genesis 2 verse 18, the Ezer must be something both similar to him, like him, and yet also different from him opposite, over against, at a distance from. And before your minds run off completely on potential tangents or potential implications, we need to acknowledge that the most significant and central implication of this, particularly in an ancient world, not unlike our contemporary world, in an ancient world, not, like our, not unlike our contemporary world, that too easily saw glory only in the man. Only in Adam. As Alice Matthews, a distinguished biblical scholar and advocate for the biblical grounds for women's rights, brilliantly articulates, according to Genesis 2, being male doesn't automatically imply completeness. That is something that needed to be revealed in the ancient world and today. According to Genesis 2, being male doesn't automatically imply completeness. Woman isn't an afterthought or an optional adjunct to an independent, self-sufficient man. Without her, Adam's condition was not good. He needed an Ezer Konegdo, one who would comp complement him as his equal, one who could do for him what he could not do for himself. Which helps us understand why the next scene in Genesis 2, the parade of animals, as someone calls it, is both necessary and unproductive as something of an object lesson for Adam and for us, again to quote Alice Matthews, re reinforcing the lesson that this need, his need would not be filled without a female counterpart because God has created Adam to need an ezer that is connecto, that is both like him and unlike him because this and this alone reveals the fullness of God and has the capacity to fulfill the work that humanity has been created for, for the glory of God and the good of the world. God's vision for the flourishing of community, the flourishing of creation, the flourishing of the world requires not simply a man or a man and his animals or even a band of brothers, but a community of men and women united together in mutual honor, in common vocation, 
and shared authority under God. Verse 21, so Yahweh God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then Yahweh God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Once again, I think this is the last time. There's a Hebrew word in this passage that opens up something beautiful and significant in this scene that speaks to the glory of both, both the man and the woman in Genesis 2. And it's the word translated here as rib from the Hebrew word selah. Many have noted, and I'm quoting both Preston Sprinkle and John Walton here, despite the familiarity of this translation, rib, this word, this Hebrew word, selah, occurs more than 40 times in the Old Testament, and in almost every usage, selah refers to the side of a sacred piece of architecture, like a tabernacle or a temple. Do you hear that? And this meaning informs its usage here in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve's bodies are compared to sacred pieces of architecture. They are not just bones and flesh of the earth, of whatever. They are compared to sacred pieces of architecture, resonating with everything we've seen so far in the image of God. Temples, Genesis 1, temples embody God's presence, and so do bodies. According to Genesis 2, our sexed bodies, male and female, are like sacred pieces of architecture. Verse 22, then the Lord God, Yahweh God, made a woman from the Selah he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said this, this, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Reflecting on this monumental moment, Abigail Favale, formerly a professor of gender theory and now a Catholic feminist, writes, the man recognizes that the woman shares his nature, but in a modality that is different from his own, she is simultaneously like and unlike him. He chooses a word that corresponds to that twofold reality, isha, Hebrew for woman, a word that includes ish, Hebrew for man, while adding something new. These terms, man and woman, first appear in the text during this climactic encounter. Prior to this moment, the man is simply called Adam. This then is the moment, she says. This then is the moment of mutual recognition. I think there's, yeah, amen. Face to face with the glory and gift of the woman, the man finally sees and knows not only her, but himself. Which I think is the aim, one of the primary aims of Genesis 2 for us. That we would see ourselves and one another as God does. Men and women created by God. God's embodied image bearers, equally vested with honor and glory and authority and needing one another. Now, I wish I had another 35 minutes to repeat the message I taught back in January, which you can find on our website the last Sunday of January about Jesus 
and singleness and the family of God because I think that is a necessary follow-up to this because it's easy to read this and then go, well, we all should be married and if I'm not or if my marriage is in a place of wholeness, then I am incomplete and I'm broken. That is another message and I would invite us to go there. We can send a link this week. I think the last Sunday in January this past year, I spoke on Jesus and singleness and the family of God. But where I want to land us today is not there. But coupled with all we've said from Genesis 2, I also want, I think it's important for us to hear in this an invitation to be generous and gracious to one another in the living out of the gender that God has given us. Stick with me for a moment. This is something the church, the Christian community, has not always been very good at. Too often the church has been known for presenting manhood and womanhood as very narrow boxes. Defaulting to, if not explicitly promoting, very limited gender stereotypes about what it means to be a real man and what it means to be a real woman. All I have to say is think of a man's man and your mind goes instantly to a certain kind of man. And yet these stereotypes we, uh, stereotypes that some, if not many, struggle to find themselves in, including some of us. And I, I, I can say that throughout my life, I've had many moments of feeling a sort of masculine inadequacy standing alongside a certain kind of man. Assuming in my teen years that a certain person wouldn't be attracted to me because I'm not that kind of man. And in doing so, we have these narrow boxes of what we think of is a true man or a true woman, which can feed into some of the body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria that is happening among many these days. Stereotypes that, contrary to popular opinion, find no grounding in the Bible itself. Just think of Jesus. Jesus, his friendships with other men and women, his ability to access his emotions and articulate them, his ability to cry when a friend has faced something fierce and is likely going to be dead, Uh, his ability to show love and affection, his describing himself in Matthew 11 Describing his heart as gentle and humble. Honestly, I don't know if Jesus would fit in at a lot of evangelical men's retreats or men's conferences. A few years back, in the midst of our congregational study on what the Bible says about women in leadership, which, let it be said, led us to some significant changes in Lambert's practice, prompted by the comments of a few who were so seemingly gender-obsessed and convinced that God is profoundly gender-box-obsessed, I went back and reread a huge part of the New Testament explicitly with the question of how much Scripture could be classified as a blue text as opposed to a pink text. And honestly, friends, there is so little The Bible, while celebrating God's gift of gender, does not present a particularly gendered 
invitation to the Christian life. Case in point, there are no uniquely feminine fruits of the Spirit or masculine, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. According to Scripture, these are the character of Jesus, which God wants to cultivate in every single one of his people, male and female. As Preston Sprinkle in his beautiful book, Embodied Rights, the Bible is profoundly liberating when it comes to how males and females are expected to act. This is why almost every command in the Bible is not tailored to a certain sex. Men aren't commanded to be more masculine. Women are not commanded to be feminine. They're both just commanded to be godly. And we need to take this to heart as we read and reflect together on what Genesis 2 says and doesn't say. In the midst of the clarity of God's revelation in Genesis 1 and 2 that we have all been made in the image of God, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1 and 2, and for that matter, the rest of the Bible does not go on to offer or dictate a very narrow picture of manhood or womanhood. Again, to quote Preston Sprinkle, the Bible is much more concerned that we be godly, not stereotypically masculine or feminine. While our culture reinforces narrow stereotypes of masculinity and femininity, the Bible doesn't give us narrow mandates for how all men and all women are to behave. We are called to be virtuous. While the Bible celebrates our sex differences as male and female, it gives us tremendous freedom in how we live within our sexed bodies, which invites us, I'm convinced, to be generous and gracious to ourselves and to one another in the living out of the gender that God has given us. And this maybe needs to be said today more than ever in a TikTok, Instagram world where we're being fed stereotypes, expectations, not just for women, but also for men. But with this, this also, I think, calls us to compassion as Christians to those among us and around us for whom gender is a painful and complicated experience because we know, according to Scripture's revelation, that gender is core to our humanity, which understandably means how, that it is hard when this is not simple. Thankfully, as Abigail Favale beautifully said in a recent podcast, she said, biblically speaking, womanhood is a capacious room, not a narrow box. Capacious meaning spacious, roomy. Womanhood is something, but it is a capacious room, not a narrow box. And equally, I think this could be applied to manhood or masculinity. Biblically speaking, womanhood and manhood are both capacious rooms and not narrow boxes. Capacious, spacious, roomy. Roomy enough for you. Roomy enough for God to delight in who made you to be. Roomy enough for me. For us to be the men and women that God has made us to be in Christ, in his image, for his glory. 